Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. I'm Nandini, and today we're thrilled to have Prince Zaid with us, a former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and the first Arab and Muslim to hold the post. Prince Zaid of Jordan is known for his outspoken criticism of fascism, religious radicalism, and threats to civil liberties growing in countries around the world. An expert in the field of international justice, Prince Zaid is a central figure in the establishment of the International Criminal Court and was subsequently elected the first president of the government governing body in 2002. He was appointed by Kofi Annan as advisor to the Secretary General on Sexual Exploitation and Abuse, and his report on the subject was the first comprehensive strategy for the elimination of sexual exploitation and abuse in UN peacekeeping operations. Al Hussein holds a BA from the Johns Hopkins University, a PhD in history from Cambridge University, and was presented with an honorary doctorate of laws by the Southern California Institute of Law for his work on international justice. He is currently the distinguished global leader in residence at Perry World House and a visiting scholar at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, To get started, we would like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us? Yes. No, thank you, Sabrina. I um, Very early on, after I finished uh, graduate school, I had to do my uh, national service, which took me back to my home country. I had been in the United Kingdom after having finished my uh, undergraduate studies in Baltimore, Maryland. And um, and toward the end of my uh, national service, I was in the U.S. My parents asked me to fly my youngest brother from Jordan uh, to New York and then to rent a car and, and drive him with all his uh, stuff up to Providence, uh, which I did. I was complaining about it because I didn't want to have to tra- travel all the way to the U.S., but I had no choice. And so I took him up to Providence and I just dumped him by the side of the, <laughs> the road with his stuff. He still remembers this to this day that I never walked him even into the dorm building. <laughs> and I made my way back um, to New York. And the interesting thing is that had my flight left one or two hours after I handed back the rental uh, vehicle, I wonder whether I would have ever joined the UN because... I had uh, a six, seven hour uh, break. Uh, my flight left quite late, 11 o'clock. And I called up a friend at the UN and I said, you know, uh, family friend, old family friend. And I said, uh, you know, can we have a coffee? And in the context uh, of a discussion with him, he said, um, he said, uh, you know, uh, they're recruiting people for service in UN peacekeeping um, in the former Yugoslavia. Why don't you apply? And uh, so I did. And six months later, I was in the UN, in the former Yugoslavia. And I've often thought about it. Had I not called him, had my flight left earlier, my whole life would have been, could have been very different from what it is now. Mm-hmm. And so there are two, two things that you can't really have control over. One are these incidental moments that shape your career no matter what you've studied or what you've devoted your early part of your uh, career to. And the second is the partner, the person you hope you'll spend your life with. In so many cases, it's incidental, it's sort of whimsical, it can be magical. 
and and you can't really plot or plan for many for many people it's like that and so the advice uh, to all students is keep your eyes open all the time Awesome. So you mentioned briefly that you went to school in England and you also have gone to school in America. Yeah. Um, so what have those experiences been like for you, like not being at home, traveling abroad, going to school in different systems? Did you find anything particularly interesting or difficult to deal with? Well, I, I found, I mean, first of all, when I turned up in, in Baltimore, um, it was an amazing experience for me. I, I enjoyed being at Johns Hopkins tremendously. Uh, in my freshman year, my roommate uh, was from an Orthodox family in uh, in New York, uh, uh, a Jewish uh, now lifelong friend. Uh, but I thought to myself, the the college has a sense of humor because they saw that there was a Jewish student and an Arab student, and why don't we put them together? <laughs> in a, and were, this was before there was a peace between Israel and Jordan. Um, it was uh, an extraordinary experience because I. I found that I, uh, and especially in senior year, I was taking courses in subject matter which were so beyond my capability or, or my immediate interest, but I uh, always remember them. Um, there was a course I took on Bach's B minor mass, one course just devoted to this mass, and uh, goodness knows we listened to it many, many times, but we went through it almost bar by bar, and the history of it and how it was written and uh, and I took a course in psychopharmacology. I think I must have just passed it by the skin of my teeth, but it was beyond all the political theory, political philosophy courses that I was uh, spending most of my time on. And eventually, though, I, I left that field. I moved into sort of um, international relations, social anthropology at one stage and ended up um, in history. And um, and I think that's what you want to see in a liberal arts education. And I think the U.S. and a, a college uh, like um, Claremont McKenna and, and any of the sort of major liberal arts colleges offer this. And I think it's a huge, huge um, of huge importance to students to have this uh, available. So moving away a little bit from your education, uh, ed educational history. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the first in line to the throne of the Kingdom of Iraq? Well, we don't so much talk about it. I mean, it's in the sense that my, my father, my grandfather, was the youngest brother of the founder of the kingdom and was at various times the regent. Um, and uh, uh, the monarchy was overthrown in 1958. Uh, my father, uh, who at the time was studying, living, working in the United Kingdom, uh, then later, five years later, basically with my mother moved to Jordan and that's where we were born. And so we see my brothers and I, my sister, we see ourselves as Jordanian, but there is this linkage to the Iraqi family. Yeah. How has this background uh, shaped your perceptions of like the international or like the international phenomenons between these countries or like how you perceive your background? And your life decisions, maybe? Well, it's difficult to say. I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question. I've never really devoted that much thought to it. In the sense, I'm, I feel I was... I mean, my career has been shaped more by my direct experiences of being in the former Yugoslavia during those two years of war, 1995, 1990... Uh, sorry, 1994, 1995. 
it was uh, for all of us who were in that uh, theater, it uh, had a profound effect. And uh, we saw, uh, you know, up front, um, uh, quite often the duplicity, the, the cowardice, the hypocrisy of the international community. Um, the way in which silence only promoted wrongdoing. Um, and it was those lessons that I think I, uh, I owe more to than my, um, my sort of familial background. Although, uh, having said that, I think from my father, from, um, from the late uh, King Hussein of Jordan, uh, all of us who grew up uh, under... Uh, His Majesty's influence, we, we, I think, owe something of our sense of humanity to him. And he was a very kind, decent human being. And uh, for us, that was an enormous influence as well. And a a feeling of service to people. Mm -hmm. So you were a political officer in Yugoslavia, and you've probably seen some really horrendous situations in the multiple roles you've played in the human rights world. Um, how do you stay inspired to continue the fight for um, like justice when it's so difficult in the current political climate that we live in? Yeah, it, it is tough. I, there were times when I was high commissioner, and um, when you're the suffering of the people that you're sitting uh, with and you're listening to that testimony, it seems to be so extreme. And you think to yourself, uh, how could I have coped if I were, I mean, I couldn't have coped. I mean, these people are extraordinary what they're going through. And it has an effect on you because you can't be, you can't seal your emotions completely from it. And um, I think what affected us in the opposite, or let's say what encouraged us was the enormous. Uh, uh, bravery that we saw on the part of people who are willing to take the risk, the gamble of standing up for other people's rights at great cost to themselves potentially. And when you see that um, eye-watering courage, um, it makes you think, well, if they can do that, then I can at least say something. And uh, they are sacrificing. Many of them end end up in, in prison. You know, I'm the international... Uh, official, uh, I will be back in Geneva in a few days. Um, I can I can use my voice, and I think that's the way I I I try to draw from the inspiration, because if you don't think in that way, uh, you can you you can really um, yeah you can be very badly affected by some form of trauma because I think you just feel at one point I think I really felt like I was almost a fraud. I meet with families who are going through the worst extremes of human experience and they are looking for salvation. And I would think, what can I do? I mean, I can make a speech. I can give a press conference. I can't bring their loved ones back. And, and you think, uh, whatever I do, it's, it's utterly insufficient given the magnitude of the challenge facing us. And so th- I, I think everyone feels that to a certain extent. And you sort of feel guilty a little bit. Um, like the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who who gets an award for reporting about the suffering of people. Mm-hmm. I don't think they feel good about it because they, if the people are still suffering, then what exactly have they done? They're being acknowledged, but what have they done? And I have talked to enough journalists who feel that way. You know, there's, there's something missing here, and I think that's what we need to 
really pay a lot of attention to. Do you think you could share with us one particular instance that has really been ingrained in your memory these out of all your experiences working uh, like ca campaigning for human rights and justice? What was something that was most memorable to you that perhaps you could share? Um, well, there were so many. I, you know, the number, the, a number of them, uh, sort of stand out. Um, there was the meeting I had in a detention center at uh, Ilapango in um, El Salvador, where I met four young women who had been imprisoned to thirty years each at the time for uh, and. Uh, they claimed th these were obstetric emergencies, these were miscarriages. The state claimed that these were terminated pregnancies. And in uh, El Salvador, the prohibition on abortion is absolute, no exceptions. The people we had spoken to who had been at the trials felt that these girls were guilty before they even turned up. And when they began to tell us their stories, um, I was sitting with my colleagues from Geneva, and my, we had a colleague in San Salvador. And um, I'm not ashamed to say that we all wept with the, with the women. It was so cruel, so cruel. These women, if you can imagine it, you know, the fetus is on the ground. They're, they're bleeding. And rather than being taken to hospital, they're taken to prison. Uh, they, they're then sentenced to 30 years imprisonment. And I went to see the president after I had my meeting with them. And I said to the president, why are all the women poor and illiterate? Not one comes from a well-to-do family. Not one comes from a family where the parent is a minister. And what, is it only the poor and the illiterate who suffer from these sorts of conditions, you know, the cruelty of society can be appalling, and it always seems to be the poor that suffers, always. And the more self-righteous the society, the more we look and see, okay, well, who's really paying the price? Is it the wealthy? Is it the well-connected, the well-to-do? Or is it just the poor? Mm. And I think for me that, will, that occasion will always stand out. Uh, it was... Uh, but to see these girls, one of them was weeping, but she was so noble and, and the bearing and the way she spoke of her suffering. And, uh, and you know, it brings, brings to home um, how universal rights are. You know? uh, and the more you listen to people around the world, the more you realize that's the case. Right. So um, in that case specifically, I'm interested in hearing more about how you particularly found out about that case because like in my mind when I think about this it's like I feel like so many instances of like where human rights have been infringed upon it goes under the radar or it's hard to find information about these places so what like in your role how do you kind of get access to this information well we had um uh, we have offices in and presences in about 66 countries I mean I'm no longer the high commissioner the mm -hmm. high commissioner is uh, Michelle Bachelet the former president of Chile. Um, and, but we have presences all over the world. And so when we uh, embark on a trip, the office will try and create um, uh, access, uh, opportunities to access various constituents. And mm -hmm. clearly we want to meet with those who 
have suffered at the hand of discrimination, of denial, deprivation, and um, and uh, and if given that access, um, we hear the accounts firsthand, and you hear you hear it in the immediacy. It should be understood. I mean, there was in Sri Lanka, there was one uh, lady who spoke to us who alleged that she had been raped by two policemen 30 years ago. And she was weeping, and it was so immediate. Her pain was continuous, felt that the crime was continuous. Uh, and even though 30 years elapsed, mm -hmm. uh, and we need to feel it. I mean, we need to hear it. We need to hear it. And so and so, the, the office will set, the, set these meetings up, and uh, it's important that we listen. Right. So similarly, in 2004 to 2007, you ran a campaign kind of banning, combating sexual exploitation amongst UN peacekeepers. Uh, so how did that like, process happen? What inspired you to take action in that situation? Well, it was a, a series of uh, events. Uh, there were allegations against uh, Jordanian soldiers in East Timor. And so I went to see uh, the deputy head of peacekeeping at the time, who sadly was uh, killed, tragically killed in, in Haiti during the earthquake. He was the head of mission. And I said to him, look, you know, I know a lot of countries uh, are experiencing this. The peacekeepers are alleged to have uh, committed uh, this. You know, we need a, a discussion. I need, we need to have a broader discussion. And he said to me, you mean you want a roundtable discussion with all the countries that have experienced this? I said, yes. He said, well, we might as well have a, you know, a meeting of the General Assembly. Everyone has something to be ashamed about. And I said, well, if that's the case, shouldn't we be doing something? And there were various allegations coming from the Eastern Congo at the time. And so Kofi Annan uh, asked me to uh, do this. Uh, to investigate, uh, look into it, and see if we, I couldn't come up with a comprehensive strategy for how to deal with this. And I had served with Kofi for a couple of months when uh, he was in the former Yugoslavia. And so the first thing I needed to do is get a, get a request from the General Assembly, which we got. And then I had a, a two-person team um, and outstanding colleagues um, who and the three of us, we set about trying to analyze as best we could, and then we put a report together. Ultimately, it all comes down to power inequalities in every sense um, and the abuse of that power inequality. And, uh, and that's what we tried to deal with. The, the problem was there were some very complicated legal issues which we couldn't resolve. Um, one was how you would prosecute civilian peacekeepers, civilian staff, where there is no jurisdictional coverage. In other words, it's the state where the crimes occur that would have normally would have jurisdiction. But in peacekeeping terms, if that state is collapsed, there's no judiciary, there are no courts. There's, I mean, the whole thing is, it's impossible to imagine that taking place. Then it becomes the state of nationality. The, the nationality plays a role. But if countries don't have uh, laws that allow them to prosecute, investigate and prosecute their own nationals in other countries, then what happens is that the UN can dismiss someone who's alleged to have committed abuse, but that's it. That's it. And so the, the person then seemingly gets off mm -hmm. impunity. The UN gets hammered. 
And uh, the UN, uh, there's a lot that you can say about the UN which is negative, a lot which is positive. But there is a lot that you ha you have where you have to discriminate between the UN Secretariat from the UN member states. And, and when I tried to resolve this, I couldn't get anywhere, really. And to this day, there's still no coverage for UN peacekeepers, civilian peacekeepers, who may be committing abuse. And there were some other recommendations that we insisted upon that weren't picked up. So it was never comprehensively implemented in the way that I was hoping it would be. So before we ask our last question, now you're a visiting scholar at UPenn and you hold also the title of Distinguished Global Leader in Residence. I was yeah, wondering very lofty, that. <laughs> I was wondering if um, you could share maybe just briefly how you think the field of academia differs in its approach and effectiveness perhaps in tackling global humanitarian issues as opposed to an international institution like the UN. Oh, this is a great question. I'm, I'm glad you asked me that. Look, you know, um, when I, the more I sit with colleagues and academics and scholars from many, many uh, different um, universities, the more you realize that there is this universal activity taking place, research work, knowledge being um, amassed, that in the policy world, you're just simply unaware of. Mm, and, uh, and it's only later that you hear about this. And I remember... At, at one stage, I was invited to speak at the um, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, the Bloomberg School, and I had just come from the Con uh, Congo, I think, uh, or I was just, uh, yeah, I had just come, and they had, um, and they told me that they had been doing work in the Congo, and I didn't know about it, and 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 you have field um, uh, sort of research being, t you know, everywhere. And often at times we would be, you know, uh, trying to find more information about this community, that country, this, and if only we had known. And so this challenge, which I think uh, many have spoken about, of trying to bring all of this knowledge to bear on the, the policy, policy decision making of uh, officials, either you know, national or international, is, is something that we need to do better at. And, uh, and some people have, you know, thrown out, uh, around the idea of having a sort of a central exchange, you know, whereby, you know, I could call up a particular portal and say, or look, uh, we want to look at the Terai region of Nepal. Who's working there? Which uh, universities have teams there? Who's got an investment there? Mm. Just so we can tap into the local knowledge, tell us what we're, you know, what's happening, exchange some ideas. And I think we need something like that. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. So the last question we ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? Oh, it's such a, it's such a difficult question to answer. I mean, you, in one way, um, um, you know, there are external markers for it, um, but they're deceptive. Um, because you assume that if you succeed in fulfilling the external marker, that somehow you need to be you need to be content and happy, and many people are not. And so you have to define for yourself what is a meaningful life. Um, I David Brooks um, wrote an article about on the basis of a book I think that's coming out. Uh, two mountains. The first mountain you climb is one really that's defined for you. You assemble. The, the elements of an education you get through high school and college, 
you then you work your way into a career um, and if you're lucky to have a family or whatever you may you know community to have around you you should be fulfilled but he says and it's it's sort of correct that for many people you're sort of hit from the side by illness or relationships that don't work or things don't go quite right and then you have to come off that first mountain and then you have to climb the second mountain and I think my interpretation of what he is saying is that that's the real definition of your life. That's where you will, it's not something programmed for you, but it's something that you then have to decide, you know, what is it you want to do? I, I think from what I can see, there's a, you know, clearly a life of at least where part of it is service to a community uh, where you where you care for a community, if, if students, no matter whether they're engineers or physicians or whatever profession they may be, if they could also be human rights defenders, there is a part of their life uh, which or do in, you know social work, help the work in the community, however big the community is. I think there's a fulfillment there that uh, will mark them um, and uh, for over which they'll have great satisfaction and feel that they, it's been a worthwhile life. Great. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Prince Zaid, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.